0: Hello and welcome to the Technicast. This week we're moving on from last episode's materiality of music to the material agency of porcelain. Substances either subtly or overtly carry meanings with them. Sugar, cotton, indigo, rubber, opium poppies. All of them are inextricably linked with colonial power and crimes. And porcelain, that fragile, costly, and beautiful material, is used by some to link notions of purity and whiteness, while others, such as our guest today, see in it a perfect representation of imperial amnesia and a misguided belief in white innocence. In this episode, our first in a series on practice, Sculptor and mixed-media artist Victoria Berger explores how the plastic arts can challenge these symbolic values of materials, and in doing so, also engage with important political issues such as racism and colonialism. And here is Victoria now with her piece called A Material Way Through the Mire. An artist's duty, as as I'm concerned, is to reflect the times. I think that is true of of, of painters, sculptors, poets, musicians. I, It's as I'm concerned, it's their choice. But I choose to reflect
1: the times and the situations in which I find myself. That to me is my duty. These powerful words from an interview with Nina Simone in the late 1960s, which are still so resonant and relevant today, over 50 years on, sum up my approach to my practice. This is why I make and think and research and experiment with materials, concepts and processes. Because I too believe it is an artist's duty to reflect the time they're living in. The mire of my title is both personal and political, local and global, and I use materials and process to negotiate and navigate it. I am a sculptor and mixed media artist and I focus on a conceptual use of colonial commodities to visually re-examine what I consider to be whitewashed areas of British history. Through my work, I aim to expose imperial amnesia and its erasure of colonial crimes. I try to connect the historical colonial project with the contemporary neo-colonial one. Sugar, cotton, indigo, cochineal, copper, gold... Opium poppies, rubber and porcelain are some of the materials I use in my practice. One of the earliest works I made to address the legacy of empire was called Cargo and was exhibited at Wolverhampton Art Gallery in 2007 for the bicentenary of the abolition of the slave trade. A timber shipping pallet, placed in the centre of the gallery floor, was piled with hundreds of manillas cast in caramelised sugar. Manias were the brass bracelets used as currency during the slave trade and exchange for captured African people. During the course of the exhibition, these solid, treacle-coloured bracelets gradually degraded and collapsed, creating a dark, shiny pool around the palette that looked ominously like recently spilt blood. I didn't know quite how the sugar would behave during the exhibition period, because humidity plays a huge part in how stable the sugar sculptures remain. And this is a part of my material practice that I embrace, the ephemerality, experimentation and lack of control that comes hand in hand with using organic substances. I have also used bagasse, the fibre of the sugarcane plant, to make three life-size female figures in a piece called Sweet Strength from 2019. This was exhibited in a Catholic church in West London and like a recent series entitled Mission, exhibited at St James's Piccadilly in London, references the role of the church in the British colonial project. Sweet Strength is a good example of the experimental nature of my practice. I wanted to use bagasse, but had no idea how it would work as a sculptural material. I spent many winter weeks in a freezing cold studio, boiling vats of shredded cane and hand-making paper from the processed fibre. This reveals how obsessive and laborious my practice can be. Working to an immovable exhibition deadline, I struggled to get the paper to dry and behave as structurally as I hoped, and, in the end, I had to compromise my ideal of making the figures purely from the fibre paper and had to reinforce them with resin. But this is the part of my practice that I really enjoy, choosing materials for their conceptual and symbolic value and then experimenting with them to see how they can work for me in the realisation of an idea. I may start with a clear sense of what I'm making, but then the materials and the process of familiarising myself with them start to change the course of the concept and the final object. I make these kinds of works because I have a personal interest in the legacy of the slave trade in Europe today, because my surname, by marriage, Burger, B-U-R-G-H-E-R, originally derives from a Dutch plantation owner in Jamaica, but has been handed down through generations of British Jamaicans. Also, a great-great-great-grandfather of mine from Glasgow worked as a doctor at the Burbese Asylum in what was British Guyana between 1875 and 1886, and he later became General Surgeon of the Colony. But in the family narrative, the context of him being there was never mentioned. Rather, his white saviour status was magnified. And a more distant relative of this doctor, meanwhile, enslaved an African man on the island of Tobago. I grew up a child of empire apologists, yet always had a sense that this was a history and culture of injustice and horror, and nothing to be proud of. I wondered why English and Spanish were spoken all over the world, and why world maps were littered with my name, Victoria, but I didn't get answers either at home or at school. Most importantly, in terms of this mire I negotiate as an artist, My daughters have ancestors from both sides of the transatlantic slavery industry. I'm interested in interrogating these influences and indeed my own role in this. I have nurtured two black bodies within my own white one and knowingly brought them into this white supremacist world. I have a responsibility to this. The stance I endeavour to take through my practice is one of anti-racism. But addressing racism not in terms of how it is experienced that is not my story to tell but in terms of what creates and fuels it i am concerned with owning and constantly reflecting on my position as a white artist focusing on my part in the ongoing trauma of white supremacy while not centering whiteness this is the biggest issue and potential stumbling block i will never forget how profoundly uncomfortable i was made to feel during a talk at SOAS in London in 2016, given by the Nigerian-American writer, photographer and art historian Teju Cole. Entitled Black on All Sides, the presentation was hosted by the Decolonising Our Minds Society and I, for once, was in the minority as a white audience member. Cole called the few of us out as white supremacists and it was a distinctly awkward, exposing and unusual experience. But he was not wrong, and I value that moment for the truth it showed me. This truth is what fuels my practice. As an artist, I'm approaching what I do with a sense of responsibility about the need to examine, in the words of academic and curator Maurice Berger, the most vexing and intransigent issue of our time, white racism in all its forms. I hope to challenge the willful, self-serving ignorance of white innocence in the Gloria Wecker sense, those people who are too busy benefiting from their privileged position of white supremacy to understand the racist world they inhabit, protect and promote. I aim to stir up discomfort, perhaps provoke outrage. White people asking what they can do, to help or as allies, is, in the words of poet Adrian Rich, white solipsism, to speak, imagine and think as if whiteness described the world. This centres the white subject and its agency and removes it from a position of being critiqued. Better questions I am trying to ask are how, as a white artist, can I reveal, challenge and change white habits and how can an art practice be actively anti-racist? This is my endeavour and I am beginning a new period of research and a body of work as a doctoral student using porcelain as a way of exploring this. Porcelain production has historically been shrouded in intrigue and associated with the fraught symbolism. Its global trade history and impact on European cultural mores continue to be critiqued. Highly sought after for its durability and delicacy, porcelain was a status symbol for 17th and 18th century European elites who coveted its whiteness. This white gold ignited a colonial era trade notorious for piracy and fueled the commercial disputes between China and the East India Company that led to the colonisation of Hong Kong in 1842. Germany's Nazi regime prized pure white porcelain, claiming its qualities reflected their ideas about Aryan culture. Cherished as it is for its purity, porcelain becomes an apt material and concept to embody, expose and contest social, cultural and historical ideologies of whiteness. For a maker, porcelain is notoriously difficult to work with. I aim to explore how its properties, its fractiousness and vulnerability when raw, its strength, whiteness and translucency when fired, can challenge terms such as fragility and innocence, as identified by Robin DiAngelo and Gloria Vecca. Fundamental to this will be an exploration of porcelain's potency as a vibrant and effective material. My fascination with material agency is rooted in my own awareness through making of energetic matter and its effect on me as a materials-obsessed artist whose training was founded in craft. I will be exploring how making sculptures, installations and interventions with porcelain can challenge the hegemonic discourse surrounding the, in the words of Paul Gilroy, buried and disavowed history of British Empire. Ruth Frankenberg argues that We need to displace the colonial construction of whiteness as an empty cultural space, in part by reconfiguring it as constructed and dominant rather than as norm. Casting a fresh light on these predominant narratives of British colonial history and its racist legacy requires sensitivity and an awareness of the risk of translating black suffering into white pedagogy, as outlined by Saidiya Hartman. Critical whiteness studies will frame my investigation into the normalising, centering, and shrouding of white identity. Whiteness theorists Garner and Dyer note that whiteness survives because it appears not to be there and, as Sarah Ahmed points out, is only invisible for those who inhabit it. This research feels timely and urgent for me. While I have been working with colonial commodities for some time now, Recent debates arising from racial justice activism, including last year's global Black Lives Matter protests, have brought the relevance of my inquiry into sharp focus. While the critical intellectual and cultural exploration of critical whiteness studies in the US has developed in conjunction with anti-racism, it is a nascent field in the UK. Beyond photography, few artists have explored whiteness as a tool and condition of current social and political ideologies. I hope that my use of porcelain as a critical tool will contribute to the current debates on the colonial legacy of racism. I hope my practice encourages reflection to challenge the status quo and dismantle the structure of white supremacy. A tall order may be, but I aim to do the deep, painful work this requires of me as a white woman. And I aim to keep asking the difficult questions through my use of materials in my practice.
0: And Victoria joins me in the studio now. Hi, Victoria. Hi, Julian. Thanks for telling us about your project, which sounds really interesting and fascinating. And I had a look at some of your works on your website as well. And I would encourage everyone who's listening to do so, because they're very visceral, even as pictures on the website. And, you know, cargo that you mentioned in your in your podcast, and, and mission was another one that really jumped out at me and grabbed me. So they do create this sense of discomfort that I think you're after. But I was wondering what sort of reactions do you get when you actually exhibit your work and when people come to see them?
1: Well, interestingly, and this is an area that I'm really thinking about a lot, is that I get a lot of sort of responses in terms of the work being really beautiful. Many, many works are described as beautiful, and that I find that really interesting because obviously I'm working on a very sort of brutal subject matter. And so to create kind of even subliminally beautiful works of art is quite uncomfortable there's many uncomfortable things about this practice that's quite uncomfortable for me that I am creating something perceived as beautiful but then perhaps as an artist that's that is subconsciously what I'm always trying to do because you're trying to always attract and draw in an audience so I think the um those sort of positive reactions are you know always very welcome as an artist but it does make me think again about, you know, the the message. You know, I did say in my podcast that I am trying to almost provoke because I want to challenge and make people think. So it is interesting when I just kind of get maybe an aesthetic response like that. And I haven't had too much negative feedback. I have a feeling that this new body of work that I'm aiming to do with porcelain Particularly addressing white supremacy and ideas of critical whiteness. I'm hoping that will provoke some more negativity, and I'm, and I suppose I'm bracing myself for that really. Again, it's going to be very difficult to, to gauge those reactions from the audience. Um, and that's going to be a large part of my research as to how, how to, how to gauge reaction, how to even get the feedback.
0: We'll get to porcelain in a minute, uh, because I really want to talk about that, but just to stay briefly on this idea of the message, I was at a conference where we talked about attention spans, so this was about literature and writing, but um, in times of reflection and our time maybe moving more towards superficiality and posting on Instagram and that sort of thing, so looking for the aesthetic rather than the depth, is that something then that you would recognise in your field?
1: Yes. I mean, I think, again, going back to a beautiful thing that is Instagrammable is, you know, a lot of artists and the art world, that's now what anyone really cares about because it is very commercialised. And I'm, my practice is not commercial in the slightest. And I'm, I have shown in galleries, I'm showing in galleries next month, but they're not areas that I'm interested in showing in because they're not necessarily plural spaces They're public, but they're quite elitist. Many galleries and and art spaces, just in the nature of the art world, I think is quite off-putting for a lot of people. So I am very aware of, you know, a potential audience being quite limited in, in art spaces. So I'm hoping that I will be able to get this new body of work in whatever shape or form it turns out in, into really plural public spaces so that the audience is as wide as possible. In terms of attention span yeah that again is is something that we have to really think about as creatives and and I think as long as the work is strong and and does attract some thought it it will be successful even if it's not actually seen for very long if it does trigger some sort of reflection then I think that that is addressed in that way
0: one of the ways that you try to trigger that is also through the materials you use, as you described in your podcast. And, um, and I found that fascinating, the idea of ephemerality and, of, you know, the sugar dripping that you can see in the pictures really well. That's sort of, sort of creating this, this blood effect um, in some of your works. And it's almost as if you're releasing the work from your control, that you're giving it over to speak for itself or to let the audience take a message away from it. But now to get to porcelain, I was wondering how specifically will you be using it to challenge the associations of purity that that some people might have with it?
1: Yes, interesting. It's going to be the focus of the next three or four years. So w- we'll see. But obviously, it has some very particular properties as a user like it well one it's a very expensive material it's like the most expensive clay you can buy which is why I've never used it before and so it automatically has this value that I will then be turning upside down I hope because I won't be making precious objects that will sit in a vitrine or on a plinth and when I fire them to that level where they get their glistening strength and purity I may well then be breaking them or you know that's that's the area that I'm really looking into in terms of the valuable object made of the valuable material and then I've always been as you mentioned in my other materials I'm very interested in ephemeral works works that kind of by their nature are not valuable because you cannot they're not a commodity they will exist for the length of the exhibition and then and then I sweep them up or I mop them up or they don't really exist anymore so i'm definitely going to be looking very much at unfired porcelain and how that works as a raw material and how fragile it is and kind of fractious like it's diff- it's difficult to work you can't make things very easily when porcelain is raw you have to be very very skilled so i will d- i'll definitely be looking at kind of turning the value side of it upside down and really focusing on the fragility of it when it's not being used in its traditional way.
0: I think that's really interesting because there's one of your works on your website with whiteness depicted as a snowflake with a a Texan flag I think or a Missouri flag.
1: Yeah the confederate flag.
0: Yeah the confederate star yeah so you're linking whiteness to fragility and I guess with porcelain that's an immediate association as well so is that something that you're after?
1: yes definitely that association with with an identity that however widespread and and you know supreme is incredibly fragile and you know that's what a lot of people are now writing and talking about in terms of response to this sense of being attacked you know the whole attack on critical race theory and white identity the response in terms of like a white rage or fragility is, is what I'm interested in looking at in terms of, yeah, just owning my position in all of that and, and using my position as an artist to, to address that because that's my language. I don't have any other language other than my, my making and my art practice. So that's what I'm using in terms of addressing, challenging, reflecting always on that position in this society.
0: And speaking of your position as a white artist, you said in your podcast that Tiju Cole sort of accused you, I mean, not directly, but everyone working in that space of um, being part of white supremacy and being part of the problem. How does that fuel your practice and how do you think you can avoid the risk of translating this black experience or of using black experience for your practice?
1: Well, yeah, that was such a pivotal moment for me because I've been working in this area for so long, but it was exactly at that point that I was really made to see who I am in it. Because when I say he spoke the truth, I'm not saying I am a white supremacist and that I believe any notions of white superiority, but it just made me really aware that I am part of the system of white supremacy. And, you know, on a more basic level... As I said, I was in the minority. I, for once, was othered in that he was addressing, he was interested in in talking to and engaging with everyone in the room apart from the white people. And it just really sort of grounded me in the nature of what I'm doing. And I think all this work that I've done previously with Sugar, you know, I have that interest, as I mentioned, in terms of my own personal background and my family, But that event with Tedu Cole just made me realise that I have to own my story. You know, I have to focus on the white side of this and be really aware, as you say, of translating any black experience or black trauma. Like that is not my story to tell. And I cannot in any shape or form translate that into art. So that's where this shift away from the materials I've used before, perhaps into porcelain, because I feel that it then keeps me in that realm and and again then I have to be really aware of the danger of centering the whole area of whiteness which is a risk in this work and even though there's you know there's now increasingly large amounts of critical whiteness studies and whiteness theory as part of a wider critical race theory as an artist making work that I want to be seen and I want to take up space There is always that danger that I'm centering whiteness. I'm putting whiteness in the spotlight. But I do think my intentions are anti-racist. I am trying to create some sort of change, even if it's just some reflection, so that I feel like as long as I always focus my intentions on that endeavour, then I hopefully will stay on the right side of that centering question.
0: Yeah, it's a very challenging field to navigate isn't it there's so many things where you could go wrong and and I think that's something that then also creates this sense of discomfort because Mm -hmm. when you focus on yourself that's where you're you're basically you're challenging yourself yeah which is always you know, something that we we would rather avoid doing, but that's where the work needs to be done. I think that leads me on to my next question really nicely because obviously you've been practicing as an artist for quite some time now and very successfully and you're now starting a PhD. So how do you think practice and theory will feed off each other? How will your practice grow from the theory and how might theory benefit from your practice?
1: A lot of this remains to be seen. But the, the reading that I do generally feeds into my conceptual ideas. And I think particularly in terms of, of, of critical whiteness and how it situates whiteness as the norm and everything else as the other, that's really feeding into then how I might use the material just as a starting place for some ideas to make some work. But then obviously then, it's very because i'm so materials focused and obsessed it's like when i start working with the material and seeing how that works that then feeds back into how i might address the original concept so i do see it as a very circular cyclical thing where i'm making and thinking and researching all at the same time and the making is is so experimental i mean as i said in the podcast the struggles i had with making paper from from bagasse the sugarcane and and the sugar always being very as you said out of control i have to really let go often when i'm exhibiting and yet the theory possibly could be quite tight so i think it will be interesting to see how the kind of loose material experimentation side will perhaps feed into a, a kind of more flexible look at the theory and, and yet the theory will definitely keep me focused in, in terms of that careful path I'm trying to tread that, we, you know, we discussed. I won't be self-censoring, but I do need to be really sensitive and mindful. And um, I think, yeah, I'm hoping that the two will, will help each other out in that respect.
0: Do you think that there's a danger of becoming too theoretical as an artist, of, being, of getting bogged down in theory and trying to translate too much of it into practice?
1: Not for me, I don't think, just because I am so materials-focused and I have to make. My my practice, my research, rather, will be my making. And, and obviously there's theory and things will be underpinned by theory, but it is very much a practice-based PhD that I'm pursuing. It's not theory, and then I'm trying to tack on an artwork. It's very much the other way around. So um, I don't feel like theory is, is too... Overt, I hope not.
0: <laughs> cool, thank you very much. You said you were about to exhibit uh, next month, so where can we see your work?
1: So I'm showing Mission, that you mentioned, the three pieces that look at the church's links with colonial crimes, um, at the Bow Open, at the Nunnery Gallery in Bow, which opens first week of October, I think it is.
0: Great, well, I look forward to seeing that.
1: Yes, please do come along
0: wonderful thank you so much victoria for for coming on the technicast and um good luck with your phd
1: thank you thank you for having me
0: well that's all for this episode of the technicast next time lizzie buckle will talk about the practicalities of being a musician in the 18th century incessant practice self-promotion and navigating the complexities of society so much for the notion of the lone genius if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to subscribe to the Technicast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Victoria Berger for a fascinating contribution. Remember that you can see her work in Bow in London in October. Thanks to Techne for their support. And on behalf of the whole Technicast team, that is, Polly Hember and myself, Julien Klein, thank you for listening. See you next time.